From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. A new bill in Congress would crack down on food production companies who violate child labor laws. A lawmaker tells us more. And we hear from a migrant advocate who worked on farms as an undocumented teen. The impacts that they experience from working in these fields tend to be lifelong, whether it's health impacts or mental health impacts or just the life cycle that they end up in. Also, Princeton celebrates Toni Morrison on the 30th anniversary of her Nobel Prize in Literature. It's Sunday, April 30th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The sheriff of uh, San Jacinto County, Texas, says authorities have found a cell phone they believe belongs to the suspect in Friday night's killing of five people inside a home in the small town of Cleveland. But the suspect himself remains at large, and Sheriff Capers says the search area has been widened. He could be anywhere now. Uh, we we uh, located the, the device that we were looking for, found it abandoned. Uh, there was some articles of clothing laying around. Uh, the tracking dogs from Texas Department of Corrections uh, picked up the scent, and then they lost that scent in the water. You know, authorities are looking for 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa. They say he was intoxicated when he carried out the shootings with an AR-15-style rifle after his neighbors asked him to stop firing off rounds in his yard because they were trying to sleep. Over the past several years, Republican state lawmakers in Texas have passed laws blocking local governments from regulating everything from fracking to ride-sharing services. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider says legislators are now poised to adopt a far broader measure that would dramatically limit home rule powers for cities and counties. House Bill 2127 would block Texas cities and counties from passing regulations in areas including labor, the environment, and finance, among others. Hani Khalil heads the Texas Gulf Coast Area Labor Federation. Local government's ability to protect tenants from slumlords could be banned. The ability to respond quickly to hurricanes and industrial fires could be banned. Many of the things that we have fought for, like a $15 minimum wage for airport workers and for workers on county construction projects. The bill has already passed the Texas House. Republican State Senator Brandon Creighton says it could pass the Senate as early as next week. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. A near record heat wave tore through California this weekend, sending torrents of melted snow gushing down rivers and streams. But California has largely avoided the damaging flooding that had been feared. Joshua Yeager is with member station KVPR. He reports that Yosemite National Park is reopening today after park officials closed much of the park as a precaution. Yosemite National Park had closed late Friday in anticipation of possible flooding. While rivers are surging through the popular tourist destination, creating epic waterfalls and vistas, they didn't rise as high as forecasted. That's great news for tourists, but the region isn't out of the woods yet. A massive snowpack three times deeper than average still looms above the Central Valley. Snowmelt here is expected to peak in early July, and it's an open question whether water systems are up for the deluge. Californians can expect a reprieve from the heat this week. Temperatures are expected to plummet some 15 degrees, and forecasters say more snow is possible in May. For NPR News, I'm Joshua Yeager in Bakersfield. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Boston Medical Center is pleading with the state to find more emergency shelters for people experiencing homelessness. In recent months, more and more families originally from Haiti have been spending the night in the hospital's lobby because they had nowhere to go and were not able to get any assistance. Boston Medical Center doctor Megan Sandal says the hospital's trying to be helpful. We're not designed to be a shelter or a housing agency, and so we're doing the best we can, and, and that's partly why we have been talking about this more publicly because we're, we're really at a, a breaking point. The hospital has become a temporary shelter since 2021 when refugees fleeing the earthquake in Haiti came to Boston. Governor Healy says she's working to find shelters for these families. Investigators are asking for the public's help to identify a newborn girl whose remains were found in a Rochester, Massachusetts recycling facility. State police said this weekend that the girl's mother may live on Martha's Vineyard or may have recently been to the island. The remains came from trash that appears to have originated on the vineyard. Protesters in Cambridge say they hope they've made their case with demonstrations this weekend and earlier as they advocate for extending the hours of a popular park. Memorial Drive is closed to vehicles on both weekend days from April through November for the past few years, allowing people to enjoy the riverfront. But this year, the State Department of Conservation and Recreation reduced that access to just Sundays. The protesters say they hope the new DCR commissioner will restore access to both Saturdays and Sundays. Construction on 93 South will cause lane closures from exit 22 to the Lombardi Street overpass in Somerville tonight. The construction will continue Sundays through Thursdays from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. until further notice. It is win or season over for the Bruins tonight at the Garden. It is Game 7 of the playoff series against the Florida Panthers. And this afternoon at Fenway, the Red Sox play the Guardians. It is 49 degrees in Boston, a rainy Sunday, some patchy fog around. Highs today in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The Biden administration is making big changes to immigration policies in the country. Last Thursday, they announced measures that include ramping up deportations for migrants entering illegally and new processing centers in Guatemala and Colombia. But some lawmakers also want crackdowns in the U.S. labor market. They say many underage migrant children are being exploited by corporations, especially food production companies. One of those policymakers is Representative Greg Kassar, a Democrat from Texas. On Tuesday, he introduced a bill called the Child Labor Exploitation Accountability Act. He joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dive into the bill, I want to get your reaction to the Biden administration's um, new immigration announcements that they made. I believe that we need more legal pathways for immigrants and immigrants coming to this country. The Biden administration, I believe, has had a mixed record on this. I don't think that by having more crackdowns against innocent families that are just coming here for a better life, uh, that we're really going to turn out much better. 
but some of the Biden administration steps to have more legal pathways and orderly ways for folks to come here, uh, I think that that's a step in the right direction. We need to see a change from top Republican officials if we want to see something happen. And so I believe uh, that the Biden administration needs to move forward as much as they can on their own to provide legal and safe pathways for immigrating here. If we have legal pathways for immigrants to be able to work, not in the underground market, but work on a level playing field with everybody else, then it'll be easier for them to assert their rights when they're being exploited, like we're seeing by these big meatpacking companies and other large corporations. Well, well, well let's dig into that. Um, uh, briefly, your, your bill aims to prevent the, the Department of Agriculture from engaging in contracts with companies that have committed egregious labor law violations, especially employing minors and having them work in dangerous conditions. So how would your bill make sure that that actually happens? Kids belong in the classroom, not on a factory floor. This bill would end U.S. Department of Agriculture contracts with these egregious violators. Uh, if they have continued and repeated violations, we could ultimately revoke their licenses. And so if these mega corporations know that their profits could take a hit, then guess what? We'll see less illegal child labor if the corporations know they'll actually be held accountable. But I, I guess my, my question is, a lot of these violations will happen off the books. And, you know, we've talked to experts and they say part of the issue is that the government doesn't necessarily know that these violations are happening. Uh, do we have the resources to even know and police whether these violations are happening? Uh, the Department of Labor needs more resources and staffing so that they can go and find out about these violations. But even when they do find out about the violations, the big corporations at the top of the food chain wipe their hands clean, and they say that it's their contractors or subcontractors that are exploiting child labor or have unsafe working conditions. And so, I mean, I, I guess, so how exactly would that happen? It, the contractor would have to be found to have been in violation by some authority, and then they would alert the USDA so that they could take action on the contracts. Is that how that would work? That's right. We have required in the bill that any labor violation uh, that is found has to be reported uh, to the federal government. And so one of the potential labor violations is uh, intimidating or retaliating against workers that speak out. We need stronger whistleblower protections for those workers. Sometimes uh, folks that exploit immigrant workers say we're going to call immigration um, on you if you mm -hmm. speak up about unsafe working conditions. And the Biden administration just announced that we can now provide protections for those immigrant workers to say, no, you're not going to get deported if you speak up about what's happening on the job. In Arkansas last month, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, signed a law that's going to make it easier for teens as young as 14 to work without getting a permit. And other Republicans are looking to loosen uh, child labor laws. Um, they're citing uh, the tight labor market. Is your bill in response or also in response to these kind of changes? In response to the massive increase in child labor, there's two ways to respond to that. You could either be on the side of the mega corporations or on the side of the kids. My bill is to protect the kids uh, because these big companies are going to be all right if they have to pay a decent wage 
uh, if they have to respect union rights and not put kids in dangerous situations, they're going to still be able to sell their food products, but they shouldn't be able to make record profits while using child labor, while having unsafe working conditions. That's Representative Greg Kassar from Texas. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Aisha. And now we turn to Maria Lopez Gonzalez. She is the deputy director of El Pueblo, a nonprofit based in North Carolina that advocates for migrant workers' rights. As a child, Maria worked on farms. She would put together bales of hay or pick blueberries alongside her parents. But it's the long days of working on a hog farm that stays with her. The smell stays with you. I remember growing up in my dad's hands, always smelling that, like the smell of the feed. And the smell just lingers, and I hated it because the bus would pick us up from school, and there was no hiding that part of us. And yeah. now I don't, I don't care. I don't mind it. I'm not ashamed of it. But at the time, I wanted nothing more than to be like everyone else and not have, like, not only be extremely different in the way that I looked, being, you know, brown and Latina and immigrant, but to having everybody know what my parents did and what I did and just the impact seeped into every part of our lives. Did the people at the farms know that, you know, you were a kid and you were working? So at the hog farm, they did. It was a very small farm, maybe less than 20 employees probably. And we would be paid under the table. And he was a decent person, the the farmer. He He really cared about uh, the children that came to the farm. And I think to a degree, he understood that the parents just had no other choice. And so when we were younger, maybe younger than 13, probably, none of us were paid. And then once we were around 13, 14, 15, uh, we started asking to get paid. Um, and that's kind of when we had to take it seriously and like actually work and not just be there following our parents around. You know, so now you're doing this work, you're doing the advocacy work. When you're talking to farm workers, what are they asking for? And especially, are you also talking to some of those young people who are out there on these farms as well? Yeah, so one group gave us a long list and the things ranged from a washer and dryer that works in the farm, uh, ability to send my kids to college, ability to unionize. And then at other times, their wishes were very simple. They were just like, we just wanna be respected. We just wanna be treated with dignity. We just want to have a world where we can work and be safe and feel comfortable. And with the youth, I have felt that with people that grew up very similar to me, you don't realize that it's a difficult situation you're living in. You don't realize, oh, I want something different for my future in the same context that maybe their parents do. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of your part of life. We just spoke to Representative Greg Kassar. Um, he's introduced the Child Labor Exploitation Accountability Act that aims to hold corporations accountable for exploiting children working in the food industry. Do you think these kind of laws, um, if they're passed, would be enough to deal with some of these issues? We need them, but I don't think it's enough um, because there's always going to be a way around it. And agriculture just has so many exceptions in other areas of their labor laws that it's so easily manipulated. Um, there are children right now in a lot of the meat processing plants in North Carolina who just 
work with false papers, the employers know they work with false papers, and they're able to get around E-Verify, or they're not even required to use E-Verify the way that other uh, workplaces are. And they'll do kind of these routine checks where people will find out, hey, there's, there's going to be some sort of inspection, don't come to work tomorrow, to make sure that children aren't being caught working there. And so there's always a way around it. But do you have any thoughts on what needs to happen to stop mm-hmm. the exploitation of young migrant workers? Yes, I think that we need to, one, increase pay. We need to have stronger standard protections for workers in the fields for heat standards. There needs to be access to water. There needs to be access to bathrooms. There needs to be access to shade. There needs to be training on what to do to respond. If their coworkers have fallen ill, we need to have uh, better insurance policies. We need to have access to transportation in these rural areas. We need to have employers providing interpreters or working with clinics that can have interpretation for the workers. We need to have just better protections all across the board so that people want to work here, so that people feel safe, and so that people are being paid enough. And that will make it where we don't need to put children in these fields. That's Maria Lopez Gonzalez. She is a former teen farm worker and immigrant rights advocate with the nonprofit El Pueblo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. It's 918, and coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get the story on an effort by lawmakers in Florida to weaken historic preservation in coastal areas. Critics of the plan worry developers will destroy iconic towns and neighborhoods. That's ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. And keep up with WBUR wherever you are with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download it or update it in your app store now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Authorities in Texas are still searching for a man wanted in Friday night's mass shooting inside a home in the small town of Cleveland. Five people were killed. The manhunt now includes the FBI. Six high school students are reported injured in southern Mississippi after gunfire broke out at a house party. It happened overnight in Bay St. Louis. Police say they have arrested a 19-year-old suspect whom they call the sole shooter. And the National Weather Service in Florida has confirmed that storm damage in Palm Beach Gardens this weekend was caused by a tornado. Vehicles were flipped over and trees were uprooted. The state remains under a tornado watch, and forecasters say the threat is moving north into the Carolinas today. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Last night in Washington, D.C., one of the rites of spring, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where journalists get dressed up and presidents become stand-ups. After all, I believe in the First Amendment, not just because my good friend Jimmy Madison wrote it, President Biden made fun of his age several times last night, having just announced that at 80, he's running for re-election. NPR's Scott Detrow was there. I know because I saw him. I was there, too. And he <laughs> joins us now. How tired are you? Listen, Aisha, I don't get out that much anymore, so I had to maximize it. I am very tired this morning. <laughs> I, it's the same. Um, so how did Biden do with his, you know, kind of stand-up routine that they always do? You know, he, he started on a serious note, we should say, talking about press freedom, demanding the release of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich, who's being detained unfairly in Russia. Then Biden turned on the funny. Uh, a lot of jokes about his age, also some digs on cable news. Here's a mix of both. You say I'm ancient. I say I'm wise. You say I'm over the hill. Don Lemon would say that's a man who's prime. A lot of jokes about Fox News as well, especially that, that sudden departure of Tucker Carlson and the network's settlement with Dominion voting systems over Fox's false claims about the 2020 election. I think Biden was funnier than last year. He brought the jokes. Well, you know, uh, pundits, I want to turn it to the serious side of this, mm -hmm. pundits have highlighted polls showing that a majority of Democrats have said they do not want Biden to run, but that's kind of moot now because he's running. So mm -hmm. the real question seems to be, do they plan to vote for him? Is the president worried about that? It's interesting. Really not especially. Obviously, Biden is going to campaign, but his team has a pretty confident view that Democratic voters who wish he would do more are going to end up voting for him next year, especially if the alternative is Donald Trump coming back to the White House. And equally, Biden and his advisors are confident that Trumpism has alienated enough independent voters that they'll largely back Biden as well, even though polls, including NPR's most recent poll this week, shows Biden is pretty unpopular with independents right now. Uh, this view, like a lot of things, has a lot of Democrats anxious. But Biden's advisors point to the midterms and Democrats over last year's midterms as a sign that this approach could work. The other hot topic in Washington these days is flexing over the debt ceiling. House Republicans mm -hmm. passed a bill. It's unlikely to get through the Senate. Biden has said he would veto it if it did. So any clues on how long this standoff will go? Will it go as it usually does right until the very last minute? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing with brinkmanship, right? You have to get it to the brink. So I think I think this will almost certainly stay in the stalemate until the idea of the U.S. defaulting on its debt gets much more real and much more immediate. That exact date is still uncertain, but it's probably within the next few months. The White House says, look, the U.S. needs to pay its bills. These are things the U.S. already took money out, already decided to spend money on. They need to pay the bills 
House Republicans are trying to use this leverage at this moment to force some spending cuts and also try to force Biden to undo some of his big policy achievements of the last couple of years. And Biden has said absolutely no. That's NPR's Scott Detrow. Thank you, Scott, and get some sleep. Uh, I hope naps are in the future for both of us today. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> nice to talk to you. In some cities, homelessness has become a much more visible problem. That's left some parents and teachers trying to figure out how to talk to children about the people they see living on the streets. As Katie of Riddle reports from Portland, Oregon. For third graders at the Cathedral School, witnessing homelessness is part of daily life. I want you to think about your own journeys into school today. Teacher Ingrid Trachtenberg is talking to her students on a recent morning. Did you witness anyone sleeping outside? Every child raises their hand. This private Catholic school is downtown. Unsheltered people wander by the playground regularly. Sometimes they're distressed and in crisis. Trachtenberg encourages candor in these conversations. Here's her student, Florence Bauer. On my way home, um, I go under the bridge, and under the bridge, there's this like ginormous homeless camp, and there's like a bunch of tents and things. When you walk up to those people, they like you don't know them, and sometimes they can be like scarier than other people. So we're called as Catholics to look at those who are poor as the same as each and every one of us. And like Flo said, that's kind of scary, right? Trachtenberg says when her students feel safe and heard, they can develop empathy, even for people who might scare them. So let's think, let's pivot to what can we do? What are we called to do as Catholics and really as good people? You should help them. That was student Simon Burke. Because you don't need more stuff, they actually need stuff because they don't even have a roof over the head. Trachtenberg also tries to show her students how to take initiative on this issue. And then we'll make our way to the table to start making our sack lunches. After their discussion, the class prepares food for homeless people. The Blanchet House is a few miles away. The class will donate their sandwiches here to help feed people like Vanessa Snick. Being homeless is hard enough because it takes you out of the real world. Snick is eating lunch at the Blanchet House on a recent day, holding her small dog on her lap. She's been homeless for nine years. She suggests the most important thing to remember when talking about and to homeless people, they're human. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm part of society. People have to understand that we're not here by choice, you know, and it's hard to get off the street. And um, we've got pants on one side and some shirts and then a few socks and gloves. A volunteer helps people find clothing in another part of Blanche House. Zale Lear picks some pants off the rack. Rain pants, I needed those. Lear has been on the street for close to a decade. Fundamentally, he wants the same things everyone else does. I think people are actually just looking for like regularity, like not being treated differently. Eye contact, a nod, a smile. 18-year-old Brooke Plass is a volunteer at Blanche House. She remembers her first shift here. I just came home and I felt like I was just so happy to have gone. It made me really, it was just, it filled me with joy, honestly. She wasn't always as comfortable around homeless people as she is now. She remembers a different experience from when she was much younger. I think I said to my mom, I was like, why is that man sitting there? Like, where, where's his house? Then I was really confused. Brooke's mom, Rachel Plass, recalls a conversation with her young daughter. 
about a homeless person asking them to give money. I remember her debating and wondering why I wasn't. She didn't have an immediate answer. You know, they're looking for something. It says they have a sign. It looks like they have a legitimate need. Why not give the money that way? I say to parents more often than you can imagine in my sessions, do you love your child enough to allow him to be unhappy? Therapist Betsy Brown Braun wrote a parenting book called Just Tell Me What to Say. Parents and teachers often want to shield their children from witnessing tragedy and hardship. But in cities like Portland, with the issue of homelessness, that's impossible. Braun says it's better to be direct. Because your child learns that mommy's going to answer my question. She's going to be honest. There's no question that's too bad to ask. A question like, how could someone become homeless? That's one Rachel Plass had to field. You know, I would try to explain that circumstances led them there. Plass says there are no clear answers. Still, she wouldn't have her kids unsee this problem. Because they shouldn't, you know, live in a space where they just think everything is wonderful and these problems aren't out there. Her daughter, Brooke Plass, is now a senior in high school. The family started volunteering together to help homeless people. Now, Brooke does it by herself. And I really, I feel inspired, you know, that to, to make more of a difference because now I'm aware. I think without awareness, there's no change. She's become friendly with a number of the unhoused people she sees regularly. They have so much to tell me and, and have had such rich lives and like we should listen. I don't think we listen enough. Of course, listening is not going to solve the deep structural problems around homelessness, but it's a start for these kids who will someday be the adults responsible for solutions. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Portland, Oregon. The Bluest Eye, Beloved, Song of Solomon. Toni Morrison is one of the most banned authors in the U.S. right now. She's also the only black woman to have won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Before Morrison died in 2019, she taught at Princeton University. To commemorate the 30th anniversary of her Nobel win, Princeton has opened the doors to her archives with a new exhibit. NPR's Netta Ulabi paid a visit. When Toni Morrison came here to teach literature in the 1980s, she was one of the first two African-American women ever hired as Princeton faculty. Now there's a building on campus named after her. That's where Autumn Womack works. She's a professor who curated this exhibition from Toni Morrison's archives. This is the first time that most of this material has been displayed. I have to be able to make mistakes and not know that they're mistakes. The material from Morrison's archives includes diary entries, unreleased recordings, and drafts of novels, such as Sula and Beloved. But what you see when you walk into the exhibition are pages and pages that are waterlogged, smeared, and partly burnt. Oh, oh, this is Yeah. So these are the fire-singed pieces from the house fire. Womack says Morrison's house accidentally burned down in 1993, the same year she won the Nobel Prize. A team of archivists saved Morrison's work. They wrapped every surviving page in mylar. Scholars are grateful for the letters and lists and materials dating back to when the author was a girl in Ohio named Chloe Ardelia Wolford. There's material where you see her playing around with her name. There's Chloe Wolford, Toni Wolford, and then we get Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison scholars came to Princeton recently to discuss her life and work. Some noted what it means for Princeton to have this archive rather than Howard, the historically black university where Morrison went to college. The archive is filled with treasures. Princeton professor Kanohi Nishikawa co-organized this conference. He points to documentation of an argument between Morrison and renowned opera director Peter Sellers. 
She defended the Shakespeare play Othello. He found it irrelevant. So she wrote an opera called Desdemona. Sellers wound up directing. I exist in between now, between being killed and being undead. It was called Desdemona. By the time you come out, you don't even think of it as an adaptation of Othello. It's its own thing with its own sound and its own lyrical voice. A revelation of this new exhibition is Toni Morrison's connection to theater. She starred in plays at Howard and wrote screenplay adaptations of some of her own novels. To honor her Nobel anniversary, Princeton commissioned performers to create works based on Toni Morrison's archives. Dear Miss Morrison, the kitchen doors shut. They send us away. Shoo, shoo, shoo. That's Daniel shoo. Alexander Jones, a Guggenheim winning theater artist. Whoa, it blew my mind. Diving into the archives of one of the best writers in U.S. history was enthralling but intimidating, Jones says. Imagine having Toni Morrison's voice in your ear as you write musical theater to honor her. You know you can do better. <laughs> you know you know you can dig deeper. You know that's not the right word. You know you can think in a more complicated way about that idea. Jones is not surprised that some of Toni Morrison's most celebrated novels are now banned from libraries and schools in Florida, Virginia, Utah, Texas, and Missouri. These books, he says, speak to division, incivility, and rage. She gave us codes and keys to deal with everything we are facing right now. And if you go back, you will receive them. There are answers there. Did you find an answer? Many. I found many answers. And chief among them, this question of how we take the venom of this time and transmute it. Transmute it into medicine. Language can never live up to life once and for all, nor should it. In her Nobel Prize speech from 1993, Toni Morrison said language cannot express human pain, racism, or war. Its force, she said, is in its reach. Be it grand or slender, borrowing, blasting, or refusing to sanctify. They are words for our time. They always were. Unmolested language surges toward knowledge not its destruction. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Many of Florida's most historic buildings are along its coastal areas. But what do you do if they're not up to code or deemed unsafe? The state Senate just passed a bill that would prevent local governments from blocking any demolition of those buildings. Supporters say it'll protect people from structures that are old and prone to flooding. But critics worry developers will swoop in and destroy iconic towns. Veronica Zaragovia of member station WLRN in Miami reports. 
Welcome to our uh, Art Deco tour, sponsored by the Miami Design Preservation League. Each time oh, Melinda Berman gives a tour of Miami Beach's brightly colored Art Deco buildings, she asks people to share where they're from. Singapore. Denmark. France. Connecticut. She points out features that make these buildings from the 1930s and 40s so recognizable. The element of threes, the two symmetrical sides, and the center rising taller in the middle. See those little shelves over the windows? We call those eyebrows to shade the rooms from the sun. Berman volunteers with the Miami Design Preservation League. Activists want to keep these Art Deco structures intact, as does Miami Beach Commissioner Alex Fernandez. These are the buildings that housed World War II servicemen. Including Clark Gable, who had already filmed Gone with the Wind when he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps in 1942. It's American history that will be bulldozed with Senator Brian Avila's bill. Republican Brian Avila sponsored the measure that Florida Senate passed Friday. He says it'll target dangerous buildings. We're certainly very appreciative of our history and historical structures, but not all these structures have a historical significance. His bill would allow owners to tear down buildings in high-risk coastal flood zones mapped by the Federal Emergency Management Agency if they don't conform to FEMA standards for new construction, or if local building officials say they're unsafe, or if local governments want them to come down. If a building is in one of these situations, it should be able to be rebuilt. There's an exception for buildings on the National Register of Historic Places and for those older than 200 years. When demolition is allowed, new buildings don't have to resemble the old ones. They can be as tall or as big as the local rules allow. I don't want to be the guy that goes down in history as putting up a skyscraper in Miami's Art Deco district or in St. Augustine Beach. That's Republican State Representative Spencer Roach defending a version of the bill that he's trying to get Florida's House to approve. It makes housing more affordable, increases property values, uh, increase revenue to local governments and it helps alleviate blight. Critics worry about the potential influence of developers. A company called 13th Floor Investments gave $10,000 each to political action committees led by Roach and Avila around the same time the House and Senate bills were filed. 13th Floor, which has oceanfront parcels in Miami Beach, has said the donations weren't related to the legislation. Fernandez, the Miami Beach commissioner, says the measure would hurt tourism and erode the city's charm. That attraction is being stripped away from Miami Beach. And once you strip that away, we end up being just any other coastal community. The House is set to vote on the bill next week. If it passes, it goes to Governor Ron DeSantis, who hasn't said whether he'll sign it. For NPR News, I'm Veronica Saragovia in Miami Beach. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Federal regulators are rushing to sell First Republic Bank today with hopes of completing the sale of the troubled bank before financial markets open tomorrow. First Republic's one of the largest banks in Massachusetts in terms of deposits. It has branches in Boston, Cambridge, and Wellesley. Roughly half a dozen banks bid for First Republic yesterday. 
The bank's shares took a nosedive Monday when the bank disclosed that customers had withdrawn more than half of its deposits. You might want to plan ahead for some travel disruptions starting this evening on the Tobin Bridge. Mastod's closing one lane on the southbound upper deck from 6 p.m. until 5 a.m. the next morning. That restriction will be in place Sundays through Thursdays for about the next three months. And at 8 tonight, the MBTA begins four evenings in a row of closing Blue Line subway service to accommodate track work. Shuttle buses will replace trains between Government Center and Wonderland. It is 50 degrees in Boston, rain today, some patchy fog around, and highs reaching the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com When I say Nixon White House, what comes to mind? A presidency gone rogue? A bungled cover-up? A new miniseries views the Watergate scandal as a comedy of errors. It's such a horrific period in American history. I mean, to me, it's sort of like a tragedy that makes you laugh. When absolute corruption meets supreme incompetence on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Is it okay to enjoy art if its creator is compromised? Maybe you love Michael Jackson's music. (laughs) Or you want to watch Woody Allen's Annie Hall. A relationship, I think, is is like a shark. You know, it has to constantly move forward or it dies. And I think what we got on our hands <clears throat> is a dead shark. Or laugh at Bill Cosby. And I looked, and there was chocolate cake. The child wanted chocolate cake for breakfast. What do we do with the art of monstrous men? Asked writer Claire Dieterer in an essay back in 2017 amid the Harvey Weinstein revelations and Me Too movement. It's a question that continues to trouble her as she tracks more examples, like Kanye West. And it's not all men. Think some Harry Potter fans' distress over J.K. Rowling's comments about gender. It's all part of Claire Dieterer's new book called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to talk with you. Well, so, you know, there are examples of so many people in this book, and and you do caution against equivalencies. So how did you come to define monster for this book? Yeah, I think that was a really uh, challenging part early in the process. I started sort of thinking about this problem in maybe 2014 or 2015, and Then came the kind of big reckoning we had at the end of 2017. And 
in the context of that moment, this idea of the monster sort of emerged, you know, this way that we would sort of look at these these men who were being accused and think of them as monstrous. And I, at first, I sort of went unthinkingly with that that language and, and sort of the way that it just held all this anger and all this blame. So I started to question whether it was really the right word to describe what was happening, because what I really saw was just the work being disrupted by the acts of these people who'd done this rotten thing. And the way that you talked about it, and I think that this is kind of an apt metaphor, is that you kind of said it's like a stain. Right. And I think the reason the stain was such a uh, useful image for me to think about was that I liked the idea that indelibility, like that stain, that just like indelible mark is not a choice. Like when you drop the wine on the carpet, you're not you're not making a decision for it for it to spill across the floor, which I feel like is my experience when I learn something about an artist whose work I love. You know, I, I don't want to know it, but I do know it. And now I have to figure out what to do. You got your start as a film critic. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of this book, um, you talk about how you've struggled with some of the directors. Yeah, I think that Roman Polanski was really where this all started from. For me, I had been researching his his rape of a 13-year-old girl in a... Um, in a previous book I was writing, I read the girl's deposition. I, you know, I really learned all about the crime and I was still able to consume the work. And so he's sort of the the ultimate kind of embodiment of the problem because the work is so good to me and so important to me. And the crime is truly awful. It's something that I have a strong sense of identification with the victim, right? So there's a way in which there you are, you're stuck between two immovable objects. So yes, Polanski was the jumping off point. But I also think there's a way in which um, music is really crucial to this question. You know, you go see a film or you sit down and read a book, but music is there and it lives with you. And you play it over and over. But also it comes to stand in for these like eras in your life. You know, you remember when you were a teenager or when you were falling in love with your partner or whatever, there's often music that's really tied to that. So the musical examples tend to be the really heartbreaking examples for a lot of people. You invoke uh, your kids at points in this book, their friends. There is a generational thing to it because it does seem like there is a there has been a shift in fandom and in the way we process, you know, fandom and being obsessed with something. You talk about this in the book. I'm going to have you read a little bit of it. Sure. Um, I'll read a little bit about this idea of obsession that you brought up. Obsession. When we say we're obsessed with something, it means I am a fan, a super fan, an intergalactic fan. I am verily defined by this thing. It is my personality. It is me. I am it. And so to me, I do feel like that is just so key because it feels like when people say they are a fan of someone these days, they're not just saying, oh, I like their music. Oh, I like their art. They're saying this person is a reflection of me and my values. And if this person is bad, then that means I'm bad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, is, am, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I think you are reading that perfectly. I, I think that that's one of the reasons that it's important to think about this stuff right now. You know, there's this sort of question of why write this book now? Why address this now? 
how is this moment different from moments in the past? And, you know, I'm 56 years old. And when I was young, I was certainly a fan of things. I was a fan of lots of things. I just didn't know anything about the makers of those things. You know, I would have the four photos of the Beatles on my bedroom wall and I'd be, you know, obviously George is the cutest. And that was sort of the extent of what I knew. And now that is 180 degree turnaround we now know everything about everyone. So there's this kind of simultaneous self-expression as fan and too much knowledge as fan, and or maybe just the right amount of knowledge for some people, but it comes together to create this very intense identification between the person who loves the work and the artists themselves. But is this a solvable dilemma because when you talk about how deep that identification can be, um, you know, people may no longer listen to R. Kelly music. And then do you watch a Harvey Weinstein movie? Like, where are the lines? Right. I think in every single case, there is a set of circumstances that, that we can look at and that are specific to that artist. But one of the big projects of the book is to get out of this idea that there's an authority there telling us what we ought to do in both cases. You know, there's, I feel like there's often a response that you just have to separate the art from the artist. And what I very quickly realized as I started thinking about that is like, that's impossible for me in the case of, for instance, Manhattan by Woody Allen. You know, that's this film about a 40 something man having a relationship with a teenage girl, uh, high school girl, but I don't get to tell you what your line is. This whole conversation is predicated on a moment and a movement where people say when they were hurt by somebody, when somebody stands up and says, this happens to me. And the way that we deal, what happens after that person says that is not perfect. But that moment of the person saying that this is wrong is crucial. Because if we don't listen to people when they say something's wrong, how can we do better? And then you have the information to make an informed decision about what you consume. Exactly. And I don't think that that decision is necessarily a decision that's based on forgiveness. And I don't think it's based on forgetting. I think that you can know what you know and live with that complexity and be a complicated person yourself with your own history. And at the same time, maybe still engage with the work. That's Claire Dieterer. Her new book is Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Internet, cyberspace, the World Wide Web is 30 today. That's what many of us just refer to as being online. And later today, take a spin now you're in with techno set. You're going surfing on the internet. On All Things Considered, hear more about the birth of the web in the public domain. Listen online at this station's website at npr.org or on your radio. We are taking a few minutes now to remember the life and the work of Rabbi Harold Kushner. There's always a fresh supply of grieving people asking, where was God when I needed him most? That's Harold Kushner speaking to NPR in 2010. He died last week at the age of 88. Kushner wrote a number of books, bestsellers that comforted millions of people, including one with a title you might remember, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He wrote it after the death of his teenage son. 
if I, walking through the wards of a hospital, have to face the fact that either God is all-powerful but not kind, or thoroughly kind and loving but not totally powerful, I would rather compromise God's power and affirm his love. So the conclusion, the theological conclusion I came to, is that God could have been all-powerful at the beginning, but he chose to designate two areas of life off-limits to his power. He would not arbitrarily interfere with laws of nature. And secondly, God would not take away our freedom to choose between good and evil. Joining us now to talk about Harold Kushner's legacy is his daughter, Arielle Kushner Haber. Thank you so much for joining us, and I am so sorry for your loss. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Listening to your father just now, how do you think that conclusion he made about God, how do you think that influenced how he led his life? Those philosophies, though, that theology was something he was grappling with as a very young rabbi all along and throughout my brother's illness. And when you follow the arc of his career, you see him really continue to develop those ideas. And it meant so much to him that he was able to comfort others with his words. I don't know that that was something he always anticipated would happen, but maybe it was something he hoped he would be able to achieve. Do you think that he was surprised by the reaction to his books? And how did that change his life and, and by extension, your family's life that he brought comfort to so many people? I think he was surprised by it. And also he never stopped being gratified um, when people would come up to them and share their stories. And he received a lot of fan mail. And when he first finished the manuscript of When Bad Things Happen to Good People, initially he didn't have an easy time finding a publisher for it. But then he did settle on Shockin' Books. And it was a little bit smaller publishing house and a Jewish publishing house. We were on a family vacation when we got news that a bidding war had started between the Literary Guild and the Book of the Month Club. Finally, by the way, Book of the Month Club won out at <laughs> that bidding war. <laughs> and we you know, jumped in the car to go celebrate at a restaurant and it started pouring rain and we were so excited. We just abandoned our car and went in the rain to the restaurant and celebrated. We were really, really excited. Your father spoke to NPR many times. He's very gentle, very thoughtful. And one time he joined us to talk about a different kind of spiritual confusion. Uh, this is a little more lighthearted. The confusion of, of being a diehard fan, used to seeing his team lose, yeah. suddenly faced with that team winning big. I'm talking about his love of the Boston Red Sox. Let's take a listen to the conversation he had with us when they won the World Series in 2004. What will we have to yearn for? What will we have to complain about? What are all those people who call talk radio going to be able to call and vent about? It's going to be a major readjustment for a whole lot of people in the Boston area and all of Red Sox nation around the country. Did he ever come to terms with a winning Red Sox team? Well, that's so funny. I think probably his book, When All You've Ever Wanted, isn't enough. Maybe it speaks to that a little <laughs> bit. 
he really did love being a Red Sox fan. And one of his big splurges after the success of When Bad Things Happen to Good People was he bought season tickets to the Red Sox. And I think he really got to share um, some of his love of baseball with his grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So he did get to continue to to enjoy (laughs) being a Red Sox fan. What do you think your father's legacy will be? Well, it's really my hope that his words and his theology will continue to resonate with people. And at the time when bad things happened to good people came out, I think some of his theology was quite controversial. And it's interesting to see over time how much a lot of that theology has become adopted. So I hope that people will continue to be able to find comfort, um, not just in from when bad things happen to good people, but from some of his other writings. I particularly think the book that he wrote, The Lord is My Shepherd on the 23rd Psalm, is wonderful and will resonate with people. And I think it's important to note, too, that how much his book was embraced or his, his philosophies, theology was embraced and received by the interfaith community. And I think that was something that really surprised him and that he was incredibly gratified and thrilled for to sort of be able to bridge those divisions. There's a traditional Jewish response to losing someone that is, may their memory be a blessing. Um, If you don't mind sharing, what memory do you think will comfort you the most? the way that he interacted with his grandchildren, just the way he involved themselves in their learning and their everyday lives, um, you know, and the joy that they brought to him was really wonderful. And of course, those are, you know, some of the greatest memories for me personally. That's Arielle Kushner-Haber talking about her father, the late rabbi Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Aisha, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staples.com. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. In about 25 minutes, you'll consider the fifth anniversary of the walkout by Oklahoma teachers as they protested low school funding. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. To elevate your impact in a changing world, bc.edu msae. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com.
On last week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic talked about hiring actor Daniel Radcliffe to play him in a movie about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, uh, I, I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. This week, we go to Nashville to ask country music legend Brad Paisley what child actor he hopes will grow up to play him. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The U.S. and China aren't just competing over trade these days. Now there's a battle over influence. Find out more. And is cheap fashion a national security risk? A new report raises concerns about online retailer Xi'an. We'll learn about that. Plus, there's a new trend in TV. It's streaming and it's free. There are channels and ads. Does that sound familiar? It's a mix of the old school rabbit ears TV experience and the way cable turned it into a bigger menu of options. It's Sunday, April 30th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. With the conflict in Sudan entering its third week, the U.S. has completed its first evacuations of American civilians. Kay Bartlett reports, though, that thousands of Sudanese are still trying to escape to neighboring countries. Tens of thousands of Sudanese are still trying to flee Sudan, either through Egypt, Chad, or to South Sudan. But there have been bottlenecks at borders and a dire lack of aid. The International Committee of the Red Cross announced life-saving medical aid had arrived in the country on Sunday, the first since conflict started on April 15. A ceasefire is set to end Sunday night, but has barely been observed anyway with fighting ongoing. However, UN Chief of Mission Volker Pertes said over the weekend the two sides now seem more open to negotiations. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. And uh, San Jacinto County, Texas Sheriff Greg Capers says authorities have widened the search area for the suspect in Friday night's mass shooting that left five people dead inside a home in the small town of Cleveland. In southern Mississippi, police have arrested a 19-year-old suspect who allegedly shot and wounded six high school students at a house party overnight. Much of Florida under tornado watch today, a day after a confirmed tornado brought damage to Palm Beach County. Here's NPR's Amy Held. A tornado touched down Saturday in the city of Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. The National Weather Service says it was an EF1 on the weaker end of the scale. Roger Edwards is a meteorologist at the Storm Prediction Center. It just traveled a couple of miles and uh, across a, a fairly densely populated area. There is a lot of stuff to damage in its path. Cars flipped, trees and power lines down. The city says no injuries were reported. The risk of strong winds, hail, and possibly more tornadoes is moving northward from Florida into the Carolinas and Virginia today. 
Amy Held, NPR News. Flooding concerns from snow melt easing at California's Yosemite National Park. The park reopening closed areas to visitors today. Nurses in half of England's hospitals, mental health and community services are walking off the job today. Vicki Barker reports from London. Yorkshire paramedic Debbie Wilkinson is among those nurses who say their pay long ago failed to keep up with rises in the cost of living, telling the BBC. We've got members that are going to food banks and we're all on credit cards and debts rising and food costs are rising and it's really, really hard and and it's the same for everybody. The Nurses Union says this latest 24-hour walkout has been designed for maximum disruption. It includes nurses who work in emergency rooms, ICUs and maternity services for the first time. For NPR News, I'm Vicki Barker in London. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston Children's Hospital has paid out $15 million to a family after their six-month-old son died in the hospital's care. The Boston Globe reports that the Kakula family brought their son Jackson to the hospital for a routine car seat test and sleep study. He had a common form of dwarfism, which can affect sleep. The family's lawyer argues that the hospital failed to properly monitor Jackson during the February 2022 test. The baby was left without oxygen for more than 20 minutes and suffered a brain injury before his parents decided to remove him from life support. The hospital has since implemented several corrective measures. Cambridge-based biotech company Moderna could soon be expanding to Marlboro. Metro West Daily News reports the city's in negotiations with Moderna over a possible $450 million manufacturing facility there. The facility would employ at least 200 people by the year 2026. A dispute over a pride celebration has been resolved in North Brookfield. The event that includes a drag performance can be held as scheduled in June. The American Civil Liberties Union says it now has clarification from the town's lawyer that the event on the town common can take place. In March, the North Brookfield Select Board approved a permit, but on a second vote, the permit was denied after two of the board's three members objected to the drag show. Marblehead is marking the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party with a ceremony this morning at 11. The town is partnering with the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum to place a plaque at the gravesite of a participant in the protests. Dr. Elisha Story is buried in Marblehead's Green Street Cemetery. He served in the Revolutionary War and was present at the Battles of Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill. Tonight at the Garden, it's the decisive Game 7 in the playoff series between the Bruins and the Florida Panthers. If the Bees don't win, then season over. This afternoon at Fenway, the Red Sox play the Guardians. It's 50 degrees in Boston, rainy today, some patchy fog, highs in the mid-50s. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. China should play a bigger role in the world. 
That's the belief of the country's president, Xi Jinping, and he's making it happen. Last week, he held his first phone call with the Ukrainian leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, since the Russian invasion. And last month, China took the world by surprise when it brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran to restore diplomatic relations. But what will a more emboldened China mean for America and the rest of the world? Joining us to discuss this is Yoon Sun, a senior fellow at the Stimson Center, and Ryan Haas, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you for having me. So if we can start with President Xi's phone call to Ukraine, uh, Ryan, why do you think that's happening now? And, and what is the significance? Well, Aisha, it's a good question because, as you pointed out, uh, it's been over a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and President Xi has spoken many times with his Russian counterpart, uh, Vladimir Putin, but has not spoken with the Ukrainian leader, Zelensky. And I think that part of it has to do with the fact that China wants to do a bit of cleanup work for a Chinese ambassador to France who put his foot in his mouth and offended a lot of Europeans by suggesting that uh, former Soviet states do not have sovereignty. But there's also, I think, a deeper subtext to the story, Aisha, which is that President Xi has built his brand on being firm and, and resolute and not bowing to pressure. And I don't think he wanted to be seen as bending to demands uh, from Europe and the United States for him to call Zelensky. And so it's notable that there has been a, a quiet period over the past several weeks where there has not been a lot of public pressure upon President Xi to reach out to Zelensky. And then this week he did so. And this may have a lesson for the United States as well. It may suggest that public badgering uh, of President Xi may not be the most effective way for the United States to achieve its outcomes uh, with President Xi either. And Yun, is, is, is part of this that generally China wants to be a player or one of the main players or the main player in the world today when it comes to geopolitics? Like, is this something that has changed uh, I think specifically to the war in Ukraine, the Chinese position is that it cannot be absent. Beijing has already realized when it doesn't have a voice, when it doesn't have a position, it will be labeled by uh, the Western countries as the accomplice uh, of President Putin. And that is not a reputation that China is willing to, to undertake. So we do see that China now is trying to play a more active role in terms of the uh, mediation or the facilitation of a dialogue or some sort of peace discussion between uh, Russia and Ukraine. As you think, it's a very long way to go. And this is the very beginning of a very long process. But it does show that China is unwilling to be absent from the issue. I, I completely agree with you, but I, I also wanted to take up the broader point that uh, that you were raising. I do think that the Chinese want to present themselves as a peacemaker on the world stage. They played a very active role in, in trying to encourage rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But the Chinese also want to be seen as, uh, as the leading economic engine of uh, the global economy in the coming century. So then how worried is Washington about China's ambitions on the world stage? Well, uh, you know, China is one of the issues in Washington that brings both Democrats and Republicans together uh, with a, a shared sense of concern and, and frankly, frustration with uh, some of Chinese behavior. Uh, and I think that there is growing alarm, but there's also frustration. Uh, there's a sense that uh, in Washington that the United States and China must keep channels of communication open uh, to 
maintain consistent communication, which is essential to ensuring that competition does not veer into conflict or catastrophe. And uh, in recent weeks, members of the Biden administration have suggested uh, an interest in, in strengthening those channels of communication, including by facilitating a phone call between President Biden and President Xi. But the Chinese, uh, according to Washington's telling, have not been very responsive uh, or eager to pick up the phone. And so there's a, a growing frustration uh, that, uh, that the United States wants to work to stabilize relations, but there's not a willing partner on the other side of the table to do so. Is the reason why these issues of like the role that China is going to play, the role that the U.S., the West are going to play, is it vital because we are now in a battle that is really over influence and what type of world we will have, like whether it's going to be one based on democracy or one based on autocracy? Well, I think that's one way to look at it, because uh, there have been the attempt to define this competition between U.S. and China as one uh, that is ideological. But on the other hand, it is about two very different types of international system. The Chinese have come to the realization that great power competition essentially is a competition for the rest of the world. It's about whether the rest of the world will identify with the United States and the U.S. approach to international politics and the international system or identify with China and China's different approach and alternative world, world vision um, to, the, to the global order. I think Eunice captured it well. The, the honest truth is there really is no consensus in the United States on what the crux of competition between the United States and China is. Uh, there are a range of views. So you often hear President Biden talk about uh, democracies being in a contest against autocracies for influence on the world stage. But you also hear other people in the Biden administration and elsewhere essentially warning that prestige drives from performance and China's performance is improving. Uh, their, their overall economic power, their overall national power, their overall military power is growing. Um, the question that I think a lot of people are grappling with is what is the most effective way to respond uh, to China's growth in overall national power? And some people believe that, uh, that the United States simply needs to run faster to keep its lead over China. And others uh, feel like more aggressive actions also are needed uh, as well to maybe trip up or slow down uh, the competition from China in order for the United States to to maintain or preserve its its lead in overall national power on the world stage. We should remember, right, um, that there is a huge economic component to this. Talk about how that plays a, a, a role in all of this. Well, Aisha, I think you're absolutely right. Over 120 countries in the world count China as their top trading partner. Uh, China is deeply embedded into the, the global economic system in a way that the Soviet Union never was uh, during the Cold War, for example. But there, there are two other sort of broad themes that I think we can uh, extrapolate from watching how countries are responding to this growing competition between the United States and China. And one is that there really are very few countries in the world that are eager to choose uh, between the United States and China. We are not seeing the emergence of rival blocks between uh, the United States and China like we did during the Cold War with, with the Soviet bloc and the uh, Western bloc. So that is not happening. Uh, the, the second thing that uh, we're beginning to see is that there are very few countries in the world that are eager to pay a high price to preserve American primacy. In other words, you know, there are countries uh, around the world that share values and interests with the United States and, and want to remain close partners and allies with the United States. 
um, but not uh, at a significant expense of trying to do damage to China and hurting themselves in the process. And so uh, this places sort of natural limits on how far uh, countries around the world are going to be willing to align with the United States in opposition uh, to, to Chinese actions. Yoon, how do you think this growing rivalry will play out between the U.S. and China? Is, is, is this something that people should be worried about? Well, I think people are worried about this and most um, focusedly on the issue of Taiwan, right? There have been all this discussion about what China's timeline is coming to Taiwan and whether China will take military action uh, against Taiwan in the in the foreseeable future. So I think there is a genuine concern that U.S. and China will get into a direct confrontation or a conflict even. Um, because of the issue of uh, of the future status of uh, of Taiwan, but outside, I would say outside the scope of the Taiwan issue, we are going to see the intensification of the competition between U.S. and China. I would say in the past six, seven years, the Chinese still had the illusion that maybe a still could leverage is um, willingness to cooperate with the United States to neutralize the competitive strategy from uh, from the United States and try to find a softer approach to coexist with the United States. But I think that um, perception or that assessment in China is also coming to, to an end, which means that Beijing is also increasingly clear that the strategic competition between U.S. and China is not only irreversible is also non-negotiable. So what that means is China is gradually positioning itself for a long-term competition with the United States, which will have significant impact over the rest of the world, which also means their competition is going to intensify. I would just say, though, that uh, although there are strongly unfavorable views of China in the United States. There's very little enthusiasm in the United States for a direct conflict uh, between two new nuclear armed powers, which the United States and China are. And if you look at the pattern of relations over the past couple of years, yes, uh, competition has grown um, more elevated and, and more tense. But when things have gotten really hot, President Biden and President Xi have stepped in uh, to intervene and try to cool things down and, and serve as a bit of a pressure release valve on the overall relationship. That's Ryan Haas, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Yoon Sun, senior fellow at the Stimson Center. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Aisha. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. It's 1018. And coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get a Philadelphia perspective on the playoff series starting tomorrow in Boston between the 76ers and the Celtics. It is 50 degrees in Boston. Rainy today, some patchy fog around and highs in the mid 50s.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries, welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham. WestonNurseries.com. Complex stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. And Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. They're design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Authorities in Texas are still looking for the suspect they say killed five people at a home in the small town of Cleveland after refusing a neighbor's request to stop shooting in his yard while intoxicated late Friday night. The FBI is now leading the investigation. Flooding concerns from rising temperatures and rapid snow melt are easing in California's Yosemite Valley. Yosemite National Park says it will largely reopen for the day today and will fully uh, be reopened tomorrow, reversing plans to shut down through Wednesday. And the National Weather Service says the risk of tornadoes will move into the Carolinas today. South Florida remains under a tornado watch. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com NPR. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank have brought the country's small lenders under increased scrutiny. There are a lot of small banks in the U.S., thousands of them, though that could change as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. The Bank of Bird in Hand opened in Bird in Hand, Pennsylvania in 2013. It was the first bank to open after the financial crisis, and it got national attention. After years of bailouts, crises, and economic struggle, people thought it was insane to open a bank. But Lori Maley was not worried. She is the CEO of Bird in Hand, which is located in the heart of Amish country. And Maley was right. At one point, they had lines out the door of customers waiting to open accounts. We had Amish sitting on the floor, sitting everywhere, you know. It's like the opposite of a bank run. It's like people lining up to put their money in a bank. Oh, definitely. Maley says Amish customers have very specific banking needs. They wouldn't be able to go to a regular uh, bank and get a a mortgage loan because their property is non-conforming, doesn't have electricity. Bird in Hand offers special loans for Amish homes and farms, also some accommodations like hitching posts and a drive-through for horse-drawn buggies. We actually have an awesome picture of a horse looking in the drive-through window. (laughs) Also, because horse travel takes a long time, Bird in Hand brings the bank to customers in some more remote areas. 
It has turned several RVs into mobile banks, complete with a teller window and an ATM. They're called Geltbuses. Gelt is the old German word for money. And they run on a regular circuit to areas where they know their customers will be. Areas such as the hay sale, the hardware store, the shoe store that the Amish frequent. The strategies have worked. Bird in Hand now has six locations, four Gelt buses, and a billion dollars in capital. There are a lot of small banks, like Bird in Hand, all across the country. Over 4,000. That's more than any other country on Earth. It's more than the entire European Union put together. Why do we have so many banks? There's some interesting history here. Richard Squire is a professor at Fordham University who specializes in financial and banking law. When America was in its earlier days, we had a kind of a populist suspicion about big banks. So states looked for ways to support and protect local banks. A lot of states passed what were called branch banking laws, which made it uh, illegal to operate a bank out of more than one building. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to imagine it now. And so every little town in America had its own local bank. At one point in the 1920s, there were nearly 30,000 banks in the U.S. But all of those little banks posed a big problem for the U.S. economy. They would go bust all the time, and people would lose everything. Bank runs would spread through communities, devastating them. And small banks still pose a risk, says Squire. He says they do provide crucial services to communities, but they can also be very vulnerable to economic shocks or a local disaster. He thinks the events of the last couple months have shown this and will mean a lot fewer small banks in the near future. There's going to be tremendous market pressure for consolidation. Americans have already pulled nearly $200 billion out of small banks in just the last couple of months. Bird in Hand, though, has not been one of them. In fact, CEO Lori Maley says people still come to her all the time asking the bank to come to their town. Last month, the town of Burnville actually threw the Bank of Burdenhand a little celebration after they became one of the regular stops for the Gelt bus. We did the ribbon cutting March 8th, and there were two Clydesdale horses pulling a wagon with our bank's name and the pictures on it. They paid for all this. That, that was their welcome to us from a community perspective, which is amazing. Never have seen anything like that in my whole life. So, like, this is not you... how I feel about my bank, let me just say. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. In 2018, teachers across the country walked out of their classrooms to protest low wages and poor working conditions. Beth Wallace was among them. Today, she's an education reporter for State Impact Oklahoma. In this story, she says teachers in her state are still facing many of the same challenges that led them to protest, but help may be on the way from an unexpected place. Five years ago this month, Oklahoma teachers descended on the Republican-controlled state house to make their case for more school funding and better pay. They were energized and hopeful, but that hope began to chip away every time they heard something like this from Republican lawmakers. I'm not voting for another stinking measure when they're acting the way they're acting. That was Representative Kevin McDougal. In 2018, Oklahoma's GOP blocked a lot of the proposals teachers walked out for. And since then, a lot has changed and a lot hasn't. 
Oklahoma's record-breaking teacher shortages have gotten worse. Teachers did get some raises, but Oklahoma still ranks in the bottom half of all states when it comes to pay. And there have been some bumps in classroom funding, but per-pupil spending is still among the lowest in the country. This session, though, something unexpected is happening. The state's Republicans are backing record-level education funding measures, including teacher raises and a slew of pro-labor bills. Maternity leave, mentorship stipends, right? Professional development, paying for additional credentials. This is Republican Senator Adam Pugh. So teachers continue to advance in their career. Pugh chairs the Senate Education Committee. A lot of those pro-teacher bills are his. They were designed to attract and retain educators in the face of worsening teacher shortages. He says the bills were informed by relationships that came out of the walkout. As I went into districts and went to these conferences and then held these meetings here, I just got the sense that there's so much we can do. We just need to work together to produce a plan. He says when the walkout ended, it may not have had the immediate effect educators hoped for, but it planted a seed. We're now looking at almost a doubled education budget in essentially half a decade, which is pretty amazing, I think, for the state of Oklahoma. But some lawmakers aren't as convinced. I still am worried that it's false hope. This is Democratic Senator Carrie Hicks, a former elementary teacher. She participated in the walkouts and won her office later in 2018. She says it's still too early to count victories. That new education funding Pew mentioned, it's currently sitting on the table, stuck in a stalemate between House and Senate Republicans. Those teachers who are really hanging in there, looking to the legislature for some meaningful solutions, and that false hope, I feel like, is more detrimental than not. But a lot of initiatives are advancing, overwhelmingly, and have a good chance of becoming laws, including maternity leave for teachers and mentorship stipends. Still, Hicks says she's skeptical the walkout catalyzed lasting change to her colleagues across the aisle. We showed up. We showed out. We talked truthfully about the circumstances and the situations that we were facing, and nobody believed us. Joel Deerdorf is skeptical, too. He's an orchestra director who organized a teacher walkout band in 2018. Like many walkout veterans, thinking back on that moment, he says it feels powerful, but it's a painful memory too. I mean, it's a time period that I will never, ever forget, but I never, ever want to do it again. He is hoping for more classroom funding, but with the legislature quarreling over a budget teachers could only dream of during the walkout, Deerdorf isn't holding his breath. Instead, he says his focus is on teaching. Teachers have to be able to block out the noise, because if not, all you want to do is look for your way out. And to a degree, I am too, but not at the expense of my kids in my classroom today and tomorrow. For NPR News, I'm Beth Wallace in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you watch unboxing or haul videos on social media, then you know that Chinese brand Shein is heavily featured. This is not just a regular Shein haul. This is my favorite Shein haul ever. Because I really, really love this top. A girl for TikTok that I follow, she had it, and I was like, I'm gonna love your top. Where'd you get it from? Come with Shein. So I got the top. What better thing to do than to get new clothes for your new closet? Before we get started, I just wanna kindly thank Shein for sponsoring today's video. But nothing ruins a haul video more than mentions of worker abuse, environmental waste, 
and maybe even threats to data security, there's even a shutdown Shein campaign online calling the clothing company, quote, the biggest national security threat you've never heard of. Shin Lu is an associate professor of fashion and apparel studies at the University of Delaware, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Sure. Thank you for having me. We've heard about national security threats posed by another Chinese company, TikTok. But do people who shop using Shein's app have to worry about data security? The same concern for TikTok can also apply to companies like Shein. Well, consumers using these apps, Xi'an intentionally or unintentionally can gather a lot of consumers' data. And also, Xi'an is very kind of proud of its so-called data science approach of designing the products. Now, Xi'an as a foreign company, especially it is a Chinese company, when we have so many concerns about national security associated with companies like TikTok, the same concern may also apply to Xi'an. So the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission issued a report earlier this month naming Xi'an and another online retailer, Timu, which is now based in Boston and is one of the most downloaded apps in the U.S., as, you know, both companies is raising some security concerns. Are they right to be worried about what's going on with these companies? Um, I think initially around last year or the year before, uh, most of the discussion about Xi'an is about environmental impact. So they, you know, offer very, very cheap products, incentivize consumers to purchase, and then maybe a week later, these clothing becomes new textile waste. I don't know how they deal with consumers' data, but because of the current U.S.-China relationship, because of the concerns for national security, when a foreign company like Xi'an can gather millions of American consumers' data, I think it is not too surprising that we worry about, you know, how this company will deal with these consumers' data. Shein maintains it is transparent in how it runs its business, but the report we mentioned earlier cites allegations of failing to declare that some of the cotton that is used in the clothing comes potentially from forced labor with the Uyghurs in China, and even says that Xi'an's products pose health hazards. Are these companies outliers in the discount retail world with having these issues? Currently, I don't think legally companies have to publish their factory list. What we can see from the product label is where the finished garment is made. So we know most of Xi'an's products are made in China. Most of Chinese cotton was made in the Xinjiang region, uh, which was concerned of involving forced labor, right? So if 100% of Xi'an's products is made in China and Xi'an's products using cotton, of course, no, there's a legitimate concern about whether Xi'an's products you know, involve forced labor. So should the incredibly low prices for products on Timu and Xi'an be a red flag to consumers? Like if the price for that cute dress just seems too good to be true, is it too good to be true? No, China these days actually is not regarded as a cheap place to make clothing. Xi'an, almost 100% sourced from China. So how it can really strike a balance to make a profit, but source from the relatively more expensive places, 
60% of a garment, you know, the cost goes to the fabrics. So labor usually is really account for a very small part. And if Xi'an prices products so low, so I think it is truly a legitimate question to ask how much it pays to its workers. That's Shin Lu, Associate Professor of Fashion and Apparel Studies at the University of Delaware. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you. We reached out to Xi'an and Timu for a response. A Xi'an spokesperson replied, quote, Xi'an takes visibility across our entire supply chain seriously. For over a decade, we have been providing customers with on-demand and affordable fashion, beauty, and lifestyle products lawfully and with full respect for the communities we serve. We did not hear back from Timu. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for spending some of your morning with 90.9 WBUR. It is just about time for the next round of Boston Celtics playoff basketball. Tomorrow night at the Garden, the Celtics start the Eastern Conference semifinals against the Philadelphia 76ers. To get the perspective of a subject matter expert on the other side of this competition, we turn to Keith Pompey. He's the 76ers beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Keith, welcome to WBUR's Weekend Edition. Hey, thanks for having me on. Now, these franchises have a history of heated rivalries over decades. Uh, What about the two teams this season? I still think it's still heated. Um, You know, it's one of those things where, you know, Boston has just got the better of the 76ers. But I I think that there's still a little disdain when it comes to the court. I mean, there was a a scuffle the first game where between Marcus Smart and Joel Embiid. And it's also one of those things where the Sixers just do not like losing to Boston. The Celtics did look shaky, at least at times, in, in the first round series against the Atlanta Hawks. What flaws in the Celtics game are you expecting the Sixers to really jump in and exploit? I think the only one that they can really exploit is the coach. Not to say that he's a flaw because he's not, but he's an inexperienced guy. So sometimes you make rookie mistakes. And uh, there are some familiar faces that have uh, swapped teams, right? (laughs) Yeah. The most familiar face, I guess we got to talk about Doc Rivers, right? You know, Doc Rivers goes down as the second winningest coach in Boston Celtics history. And then all of a sudden, he ends up with the Sixers. People like to love Doc. And now he's going to go in there and they're going to boo him. And then there's another guy by the name of Al Horford. You know, Al Horford comes to uh, Philadelphia. And at that time, I think the people in Boston were calling him a traitor. He was in Philadelphia, and it was probably one of his worst seasons of his NBA career. So now he's back in Boston, and he's playing to the elite level that he always has. You know, you're going to have the guys who he, Joel Embiid and other guys, looking at him like, you're the enemy again. Not to put too fine a point on it, but in recent years, the Celtics have... I would say the verb might be owned the Sixers. I'm wondering how the players and the fans in Philly are kind of plotting revenge. 
It's going to be extremely vocal once they get to Philadelphia for game three, you know, from the fans. The players, I, I think they know that everything is riding on this one. It's one of these things where the Sixers know if they want to accomplish what they want to accomplish, you have to beat your big brother, so to speak. And that's the Celtics. How would you say that the Sixers and, and the Philadelphia fans tend to view not just the Celtics, but also, you know, the Celtics fan base? I've been covering the NBA for 10 years. This is my 10th season. And I remember when I first went to Boston and I met people and they were nice and I was stunned. I mean, I literally was. As a kid growing up in Philadelphia, you were told not just hate the Celtics, but to hate everything about people from Boston. But then as I'm in the city, I'm walking around and I'm realizing like, oh, this building reminds me of Philly. Oh, the people here remind me of people from Philly. A different accent, right, of course. But, you know, that's just how it is. It all starts with the the rivalry with basketball. Well, you know, Philadelphia uh, does have kind of a reputation as a tough crowd. Yeah, but it's no tougher than what it is in Boston. I mean, I've been to the games. There's been times I've been there and they played other teams and it's, you know, they get on you. They, I think Boston is one of the toughest places to go to win a game. You know, Philadelphia is too. I just think that Philadelphia, you know, gets kind of sort of like a bad rap, just like the Raiders, the Oakland Raiders used to get, because it's, it sounds great to say we're tough, we're this, we're that, but they're no tougher than the people in Boston, the people in New York. You've kind of hinted, but what's your prediction for this series? I think the Boston Celtics are going to beat the Sixers. Boston just has too much firepower, like Jason Tatum, like Jalen Brown. It's just a tough draw for the 76ers. Well, Keith, thanks, and have fun covering it no matter what. Yeah, I will. I hope to. <laughs> Keith Pompey is the 76ers beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. While Celtics fans are eagerly anticipating round two of the playoffs, a lot of Boston Bruins fans are on edge. Tonight is the decisive game seven of the first round playoff series against the Panthers. And after the Bees' record-breaking regular season, notching the most victories of any NHL team ever, it is now win or go home for the Bruins. Coming up. In about 10 minutes on WBUR, we'll revisit an NPR conversation with Rabbi Harold Kushner, who led a Natick congregation for decades and wrote the best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner died Friday at the age of 88. It's 50 degrees in Boston, rainy today, some patchy fog around, and highs reaching the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic talked about hiring actor Daniel Radcliffe to play him in a movie about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, uh, I, I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. <laughs> on Peter Sagal, this week we go to Nashville to ask country music legend Brad Paisley what child actor he hopes will grow up to play him. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, 
a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Rosco, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Bob Bickle of Severna Park, Maryland. I said, think of a five-letter word for things a lot of people complain about. Add a letter and rearrange the result to get an example of those things. Then add another letter and rearrange to get a remedy for those things. What words are these? Well, people complain a lot about pains. Add an R and rearrange, you get a sprain, which is an example of a pain. And add an I and scramble, you get aspirin, which can help remove that pain okay now so this puzzle was popular there were over 1300 correct entries and our winner is karen brock from lawrence kansas congratulations and welcome to the show thank you it's a pleasure to be here <laughs> well you know and and how long have you been playing the puzzle i understand you've been playing it for a long time but maybe not submitting right that's right. I've been playing the on-air portion, so only when it's come into my head right away have I submitted. And so how many times? So is this your first time? Second. Your second time. So there's some people at home just shaking their fists at the radio because they've been trying for years. <laughs> so and, and what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, um, I'm learning how to garden. I've taken our county extension offices master gardener course and now i'm volunteering at local gardens especially setting up gardens for pollinators and uh, native plants oh well that that is lovely so you are a master gardener so or a garden master in theory um, <laughs> <laughs> all right karen well are you ready to play the puzzle i think so okay you are you got this okay so take it away will all right karen and aisha Every answer today is a seven-letter palindrome in two words, reading backward and forward the same. So get the palindromes from their clues. For example, if I said number one position, three, four, you would say top spot, because top spot reads the same backward. Here you go. Number one, an Indianapolis 500 vehicle, four, three. Indy. What's that vehicle in the Indy 500? <laughs> yeah, and what, what kind of car? Now you know it starts uh, ends in C-A-R, so it starts R-A-C. Race car. Race yes. car, you got it. We're off and running. Number two, a vehicle for taking sailors to Annapolis. 4-3. Four, 4-3. Three. Four, three. Navy. Yes. Okay, just do the first three letters backward. I'm having a hard time. Navy van. Navy van, you got it. How about very, very angry? 4-3. Mad. Uh-huh. 
If you're very, very angry, 4-3. Oh. oh, you're damn Alien. mad? <laughs> you are damn mad. <laughs> Thank you, Ace. That's wonderful. <laughs> and uh, here's your last one. To call 911, for example, 4-3. Dial. Uh-huh. Dial 8. Dial aid, yeah, that's what you do. Oh my good goodness, job. Karen, you did so good. How do you feel? Relieved, <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> I'm glad it's over. <laughs> well, you did a great job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org/puzzle. And Karen, what member station do you listen to? I listen to two K A N U here in Lawrence, Kansas and KEMC in Billings, Montana. That's Karen Brock of Lawrence, Kansas. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Oh, thank you both. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yeah, it's a tough one from listener Joe Becker of Palo Alto, California. The Z sound can be spelled in many different ways in English, like the S in measure, like the G in beige, like the Z in azure, like the J in Maharaja, and like the X in luxury, as some people pronounce it. The ZH sound can also be spelled as a T in one instance. We know of only one common word that this is true of, not counting its derivatives. What word is it? So again, what is the only common English word in which the Z sound is spelled with a T? Okay, when you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle and click on the submit your answer link remember just one entry please our deadline for entries this week is thursday may 4th at 3 p.m eastern don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you if you're the winner we'll give you a call and if you pick up the phone you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the new york times and puzzle master of weekend edition will shorts thank you will thank you aisha Linear TV is making a comeback, but this time via streaming. Tubi and Pluto TV are among the free streaming services that allow you to turn on a channel online with ads. Want to watch reruns of a classic show? Beam me up, Mr. Spark. Yes, there is a Star Trek channel. And there's a bunch of other shows and movies as well. Here to break it down for us is Dade Hayes, business editor at Deadline Hollywood, Welcome to the program. Great to be with you. These streaming services are called free ad-supported streaming television, or FAST for short. Tell me a little bit about them and their offerings, because it, it sounds a little bit to me like this thing we used to have, which was like broadcast TV, where you would like turn on the TV and there were ads, and that's how that worked. <laughs> You're definitely on the right page with that. I mean, I think it's a mix of the old school broadcast rabbit ears TV experience and the way cable turned it into a bigger menu of options. And this is all taking place in the digital environment. So imagine how many websites there are out there, how many social media you know pages there are out there. It's just as targeted and sliced and diced as that kind of world. What sets the big streamers like Tubi, Pluto TV, and like Roku channel apart from each other? There's different emphasis on live 
uh, linear style programming and on demand. Like Tubi is much more of a library on demand experience where you poke around or you know something is there and you search for it and you call it up and you watch it. Pluto is a lot more of a lean back. There's an on-screen programming guide where you can channel surf and do a lot of the stuff that we're all, you know, some of us are, have been accustomed to doing for, for decades, you know, with, with traditional TV. And then there's a few services. Local Now is one. Amazon Fire TV is another um, that have kind of a different orientation, whether it's local now has a lot of local TV stations on it. Fire TV lets you search by genre, sports, cooking, uh, you know, travel, different kind of things that you're looking for. And the big thing about this is that you 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 don't need a subscription to Tubi and Pluto TV and these other things. You, you can just like get on them, right? They're absolutely free. And in fact, they're really kind of designed for that unboxing of a smart TV set. You know, that's why Samsung and Vizio and LG and all the, you know, TV makers also are deeply invested in fast because they want you to bring the set home, plug it in. And as long as you've got an internet connection, you can jump on these fast channels um, without a pay TV subscription. The, the system is losing five, six million uh, pay TV subscriptions every year. People are cutting the cord now it's not quite equivalent to cable TV or the the, the pay TV package uh, that you're leaving behind, but you don't need to pay anything. You know, th these are wide open and free, and that's what they're sort of experimenting with. How are these uh, services influencing traditional streaming like Netflix? Because this is you know kind of crowding the market now, right? It's keeping everybody on their toes. And, you know, some of those subscription services, like I'm thinking of Peacock, took Fast into account when they launched. They have a whole sort of vertical within Peacock that is a Fast lane, if you will. It's like this area of Peacock that is Fast channels. So you're starting to see more of that as we go. And, you know, my prediction is that as advertising becomes a lot more common in streaming, you know, Netflix and Disney just launched ad services last fall, you're going to see more fast included in the mix. I think it's just going to be a type of streaming that's appealing to a certain consumer that's going to end up taking up more real estate overall. That's Dade Hayes, business editor at Deadline Hollywood. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is 90.9 .9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. The Natick rabbi who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People is being remembered for comforting people who questioned God in times of loss. Harold Kushner died Friday in hospice care in Canton. He was 88 years old. He wrote his 1981 book after the death of his firstborn son. Kushner spoke with NPR's Renee Montaigne in 2010. If I, walking through the wards of a hospital, have to face the fact that either God is all-powerful but not kind, or thoroughly kind and loving but not totally powerful, I would rather compromise God's power and affirm his love. So the conclusion, the theological conclusion I came to, is that God could have been all-powerful at the beginning, but he chose to 
designate two areas of life off-limits to his power. He would not arbitrarily interfere with laws of nature. And secondly, God would not take away our freedom to choose between good and evil. Many things have happened to you since you wrote this book. When you first wrote it, you were reasonably fresh from, from the experience of losing your own son. Tell us about that. Our son Aaron was born in 1963, and he was a perfect child for about the first six months of his life, and then he just stopped growing. And the doctors were puzzled until finally we found a specialist who diagnosed it as progeria, the rapid aging syndrome. And Aaron never grew to be beyond three feet tall, lost his hair, was very skinny. Uh, his heart started malfunctioning when just after his bar mitzvah when he was 13. And it just seemed so terribly unfair, and it, it forced me to reconsider everything I'd been taught in seminary about God's role in the world. Yeah, it was shattering. Since then, I've had people from a more traditional perspective saying to me, don't you think maybe this was God's plan, that by going through this terrible tragedy, you would be stimulated to write this book, which has brought comfort to millions? And my answer said, if that was God's plan, it's a bad bargain. I don't want to have to deal with a God like that. Although you hear on occasion people saying that about their own suffering, that something good came out of it. And that's what is solace to them. Ah, uh, let me make a very important distinction here, and I'm so glad you raised this, Renee. There is all the difference in the world between saying, I was able to get something good out of this, and saying, God intended it to teach me this lesson. I don't believe God sends the tragedy so that we will grow spiritually. I believe the tragedy happens for all sorts of reasons. Uh, natural reasons, biological, genetic reasons, human cruelty reasons. Once it happens, I think God's role is to give us the strength and the vision to come through it and come through it with our faith intact. God is there to send us people to hug us and hold our hands and dry our tears so we don't feel abandoned, not by God and not by friends. And then in our response to the tragedy, then we have something good that comes out of it. Can I take you back to, to a time before all of this? See, when you were growing up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn in the 1940s, from what I understand, it sounds like you had rather a happy childhood. Oh, I did. No, there was no preparation for tragedy. I went to seminary, and I was given a fairly traditional theological education, and I believed it. Renee, I am embarrassed to remember how I counseled some families who had a tragedy in my early years as a rabbi, before I had to try those words out on myself and discover they really didn't comfort very much. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, but you, in other words, it was somehow God's will or? Yeah, I, I can remember one case, my first year as a rabbi, the 17-year-old son of a family in the congregation was killed. He'd been joyriding on the back of a truck and fell off and the car behind hit him and killed him. I felt utterly helpless. I said, what do you say in a case like that? I said something to the parents like, we can't understand why this happened, but we have to believe that somewhere down the road we'll see that it made sense. And God, I wish I could take those words back. Natick Rabbi Harold Kushner speaking with NPR in 2010. He's best known for his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner's funeral will be held Monday at Temple Israel of Natick. He served there as a congregational rabbi for 24 years. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Start your Monday tomorrow with 90.9 WBUR. We will give you the story on how greater Boston arts institutions have navigated the pandemic and what their next steps might be. Listen tomorrow morning on the radio and the WBUR app. Join Here and Now co-host Robin Young on Tuesday, May 16th at City Space for a free event. It's a conversation exploring toxic restaurant culture and how it can change. For free tickets, go to wbur.org events. It is 50 degrees in Boston, rainy today, some patchy fog around, and today's highs in the mid-50s. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. When I say Nixon White House, what comes to mind? A presidency gone rogue? A bungled cover-up? A new miniseries views the Watergate scandal as a comedy of errors. It's such a horrific period in American history. I mean, to me, it's sort of like a tragedy that makes you laugh. When absolute corruption meets supreme incompetence on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.